And th you think of it as I did, I did. I did. As opposed to shame, which is I am. Mm -hmm. Shame is about identity, it's about who I am. Guilt is about what I do relationally. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm really honored to be sitting here with you one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know, you probably do not know this, I wouldn't expect you to, but you were actually one of my level two trainers with Dick. Oh, okay. Back in, I had to look at the dates. Uh, we ended it in November of 2022. Right. And it was through the Cambridge Health Alliance. Right. So that was the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I was so excited when I got the the email notice letting me know that I was accepted into that level too, because obviously it's a huge deal to be taught directly by Dick Schwartz and yourself. And you. it was such a wonderful experience to be able oh. to hear from you both directly in that type of space. And the fact that we can be sitting here together right now, one-on-one, -on -one. I'm just very yeah. honored. So thank you. Thank you, Natalie. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to talk about guilt and shame, which I feel like parts of me are like, isn't that funny? You know, we can get excited about talking about that, but yeah. it's something that we all experience. Right. It's something that I feel like every single person is going to be impacted by at some points in their life. And yeah, I really wanted to focus on, on that today in our chat. Uh, specifically around the information you mentioned in your book, Internal Family Systems Therapy for Shame and Guilt. And in the level two training, the focus it also was on, I think it was anxiety, depression, shame, but obviously you threw guilt in there and uh, and talking about all of all of that more in depth. And what I learned in that level two training, was extremely helpful for me, both personally and professionally as I worked with my clients. And so I'm excited to share with the listeners today to have them hear directly from you about guilt and shame, because I feel like sometimes those are things that we maybe mix up or don't really fully understand how they yeah. differentiate. But I would love to hear first, because whenever someone I'm talking to is deeply involved with IFS, I love to ask the question of what was your journey to IFS? And do you feel like it found you? Do you feel like you found it? Do you care to share about that? Well, yeah, sure. I worked at the Cambridge Health Alliance for 18 years, and it was kind of a, a great place for information. There were a lot of really interesting people and people coming through town, through the Boston area, and it was a very lively spot, and um, so it was a good place to hear about all the latest, the latest things going on in the field. And um, I was, it was also a place where I could sort of take seminars and learn new things constantly. So it was a great learning environment for me throughout that time period, as I was a, a practicing clinician there. And a colleague friend just said one day, well, you know, there's this really interesting guy who's going to be talking at the church on the common over in, in Harvard Square. And why don't you come over with me and let's go hear him? So I said, okay. And we went over and that was Dick. And just, yeah. you know, 
showing uh, uh, a video of some work he was had done at um, at an eating disorder center, and it the you know light bulbs were going off for me. Um, mm -hmm. I was trained in many different approaches to therapy over the years, and had had my own kind of through line uh, during that whole time in terms of thinking about about shame and guilt since since the time I got into the field and wor had worked at Cambridge Health Alliance with a tremendously traumatized population. And what he was doing put a lot of things together for me. I didn't know how he was doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I was sort of, my mind was blown by what I was seeing, what I didn't understand about how he got the, was getting the results he was getting with this young woman he was interviewing in the video. But now I just thought, well, I have to immediately get trained in that because that's whatever he's doing, I got to find out. So I went, I talked to him that day and then I went into a level one training as quickly as I could, mm. um, which was going on in Watertown. People would, it was a great training center in Watertown and people, all these lead trainers would fly in at the time. They were flying all over the country to do these level one trainings. And yeah. so it was a wonderful opportunity for me. Mm. And what year was that? That was 2005. 2005. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you had this invitation. And when you started to hear him speak and share these videos about his work, like you said, it sounds like your system was kind of like, oh, this is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is, is what this I, puts yeah. puts a lot of the things together. Right. Um, I yeah. felt that way too. Yeah. I had been practicing as a therapist for, uh, you know, about eight years, but I had never heard about IFS until, yeah, about eight years into my career. And it actually came from a client that I was working with that mm -hmm. read about it in a complex PTSD workbook. And I read that blip about it in the workbook and it was like, mm, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then it wasn't until I was in yoga teacher training that my yoga mentor, she mentioned it and it was like, okay, I have heard about this before. And same thing, similar to what it sounds like with you. I had been doing other types of modalities, of course, and you know, some things were working, some things were not. And, but I always felt like something was missing. And yeah, when I really got to fully understand IFS, I was like, okay, yep, this is, it felt like the missing piece, right? The missing piece for me. So it sounds like that was the feeling you got as well. Yeah. And for listeners who may not be that familiar with IFS, the missing piece is a paradigm shift in terms of how, for me, at least in terms of how we look at the functioning of the mind. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, I, I mean, IFS is in my view of an extremely well kind of streamlined, efficient way of approaching that. But it was also the whole idea that of how the mind uh, is arranged and how it functions that was revolutionary for me. It's not that it's new with IFS. I mean, that, you know, other people have spoken about this, but the way Dick was presenting it was particularly accessible for me. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you on that as well, that it felt like it just made everything click a little bit easier for me in my mind and being able to look at myself and the people I was working with in this way that made sense. Right. 
and because I look back and it was kind of, I could see moments where parts of me would be, you know, trying to help this person, but feeling confused, feeling frustrated, not really fully being able to really conceptualize it. And then with the IFS way of looking at our minds and, oh, it's just, it's, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. And so how did you come, I guess, to specialize in shame and guilt? You mentioned, if I heard you correctly, that that was something you were already Mm -hmm. focused on before you came across IFS. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I got into the field in the 80s. And um, one of the first things I noticed when I started doing clinical work and seeing clients was that um, this, you know, the theme of of self-blame and um, uh, being covering in an umbrella fashion, both shame and guilt was prominent for a lot of clients. And Mm -hmm. so I got interested in it from the get-go of my career. Okay. And then as you got trained in IFS, would you say it was just kind of like a natural progression then of, do you feel like it shifted a lot for you in the way that you looked at shame and guilt? after being trained in IFS? Uh, it shifted, IFS shifted how I look at everything mm-hmm. in, in you know, in terms of human behavior, human motivation, my life, how people behave around me, how I behave, you know, just how I understand history, all that was, has been profoundly affected by, by this view of things. Um, so yes, um, it affected my sort of ongoing study, more or less, of of these emotions. Um, I had gotten particularly interested in the eighties um, in a an approach called control mastery theory, which was a uh, kind of spearheaded by a guy in San Francisco at the time and a professor of mine was was into that and I, I got involved with that. Um, so I'd been thinking about guilt and following maladaptive guilt and I had been following a big discussion uh, with June Tang, between June Tangy and the folks in the control mastery community um, about shame and guilt both. And so I just over the years had had been sort of that was my through line in terms of how how I was thinking about clinical work, what was important in clinical work, and and all the various theories I was reading about and studying, including uh, DBT. Later on, I, mm-hmm. I got involved with that. But you know, this was the first time that I was moving from a more abstract approach. Let's put it that way to the very, uh, I think, usefully concrete approach of IFS in which you people have the opportunity to not just observe what their internal processes are, but interact with their parts and find out from parts who are often very young what their motives are specifically now rather than guessing and uh, being abstract about it. Yeah, and that's what I have felt to be the one of the biggest things for me in therapy work is shifting from like a talking about way of doing it with a client to then an actual connecting with the parts directly. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, you know, for someone, I think for a lot of people is 
specifically in our culture of the United States, I can speak to that because I'm born and raised here, is we're not taught to do that direct way of connecting inward and with these parts of us. And so I do find that when I invite that shift with a client, you know, parts of them can be like, wait, what? We're not just going to sit here and talk about it because that's been the culture. And also I feel like in a lot of therapy modalities is we talk about it and there can be usefulness to that, but I never felt like it was getting to the actual healing of directly Also the story can change radically. Uh, once you actually start talking two parts, because people right. will come in with one part telling a story mm-hmm. and not and either either purposely misrepresenting bec- because it doesn't want you anybody digging in too much to exactly to the, the motives that are going on internally or or not knowing really the motives of another part. Yeah. So one of the things I love about IFS is if somebody says, I don't know why I do it. I say, great. I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Let's talk to the part <laughs> who does know why they're doing it. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that. No, it, it, absolutely. It's like, okay, yeah, you might not know, but there is a part of you in there that does know. That's right. This behavior and, is not, not you. It's you. you right. Know? There's yeah. nothing disowned in IFS, which yeah. I love. Yeah. It's amazing. And I always love it when someone kind of comes out of an experience of doing insight and they're like, wow, I would have never guessed you exactly. know, that that, 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 that was, was shared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah, let's get into talking about guilt and shame specifically. Yeah. Let's start with guilt, if that's okay. Sure. What is guilt? Uh, guilt is I did. It's a behavior. Um, I... Uh, the assumption when you feel guilty um, is that you have transgressed in some way, right? Some mm-hmm. some part, your conscience, shall we say, in, in common parlance, which would be, you know, your parts and yourself, uh, that sort of uh, compass we have, moral compass we have internally, would notice um, I have done something that I shouldn't have done that has harmed somebody else. I am concerned about you. I did wrong. I'm concerned about you. I have the action urge uh, of wanting to make a repair um, and um, make up for this behavior in some way to preserve this relationship. So it's a very pro-relational, pro-social emotion that keeps us um, uh, in connection and able to repair relationships. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, because if we didn't have guilt, then would you say we would be out doing things behavior wise, that could potentially be hurting other people in various ways. And we wouldn't necessarily the definition of a sociopath is somebody who doesn't experience guilt, right? They don't they'll do stuff without having a conscience without having any concern for other people they dismiss the idea that anybody else counts. So guilt is associated with a behavior, a transgression, an action. And you think of it as I did, I did, did. as opposed to shame, which is I am. Mm -hmm. Shame is about identity. It's about who I am. Guilt is about what I do relationally. And so Um, with guilt, (laughs) you also talk about two different types of guilt, which this is where I felt was Mm -hmm. really 
helpful for me. And this is something that I share with my clients now, and this has been very helpful for them is you talk about adaptive guilt and maladaptive guilt. Right. Can you share what is adaptive guilt, which I feel like we already got into that just now a little bit, but yeah, it's just adaptive guilt is if I really did transgress. Right. And I think if you can tap into your moral compass, you can decide that for yourself. Right. We all know when we actually transgress, but it can get very confusing for people who were brought up in environments where they there was a lot of um, sort of um, encouragement of what I call maladaptive guilt and maladaptive guilt is survive the two main kinds that have been really kind of articulated well are survivor guilt and separation guilt. And in both cases, well, survivor guilt is if I thrive, if I'm successful, if I do well in in pursuing my goals in life, I am harming somebody who I am responsible for or who I am loyal to and who I love, mm-hmm. right? So um, uh, a child might... Uh, Uh, grow up in an environment where their family is fairly dysfunctional and it's very hard. They'll have parts who are are afraid of going out and and differentiating from that um, because relationally it it may certainly lose them some connections, but they may also be in an environment where they were told we stick together. We're all dysfunctional together. If you Mm -hmm. differentiate, um, then you are abandoning and, and being a bad person. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's a big problem in not just in families of origin, but in in circles where people are have a sort of pact to engage in a behavior that's destructive together. You know, mm-hmm. if, if everyone's using uh, alcohol to excess or something in, in some circles, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the person who stops drinking get either can get a lot of uh, a blowback for doing that and may actually have to leave that community mm-hmm. um, in order to, uh, to, because they get exiled basically for differentiating. And so that would be for that person, let's That's say. Survival. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they might have, would you say. If they a- said, if they decide it's survivor guilt, well, it's survivor guilt. If there's a part who says you can't do this. But it's also survivor guilt if they don't do it because they're afraid of losing those connections or Mm -hmm. and of harming their their the people around them by differentiating. Right. Um, And that's for kids who grow up in dysfunctional families or who are parentified in some way. Those those are very strong, that can be a very strong motive. Mm -hmm. And separation guilt is related. It's a little bit different. Separation guilt is if I uh, pursue my no, you know normal developmental goals in my life. I am harming uh, somebody for whom I'm responsible or who I love. Right. Uh, and so, parentified children are, you know, prime examples of of uh, those two kinds of forces at mm-hmm. work often. And people can grow up and and have very functional lives actually, and still be uh, holding themselves back in some way, mm-hmm. or or if they're not holding themselves back, they could be punishing themselves at the same time that they're doing well uh, because 
they have a part who feels that they have to atone for the guilt of of differentiating from the people who they were supposed to take care of. Yeah. So it gets quite complicated. Sure. I, I witnessed that uh, maladaptive guilt in terms of separation. I used to be a therapist at a university mm-hmm. and I worked at the university for 10 years as a therapist. And, you know, you get to meet a number of first generation college students. And the area that I was working at was um, in somewhat of a, a rural area of Kentucky. And I would meet a number of students in therapy that were coming for for help due to anxiety mm-hmm. and maybe even depression shut down. And as we got to talking, I, I know I started to notice a pattern and and a lot of students where a part of them was feeling guilty that right. they were at college, yeah, and that they had left their their family, and parts of them were then debating back and forth now looking at it from an IFS lens, we're debating back and forth within of should we go back home or should we stay and get a degree? Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was really hard, uh, especially when for some of them, they had families that were overtly telling them, how dare you leave us? Right. You're who a bad you, person. You're, you're a bad person. Heavy. Who do you think okay. you are? Um you know, we right. need help. We need you to to work and give us money. And that, all of that mm-hmm. might be true, right? There mm-hmm. there might be a level true, meaning maybe they they could benefit from a, a person having more income and providing that in in the in the home. But at the same time, like you mentioned before, it's becoming a maladaptive guilt for the student because they're pursuing a natural developmental stage of going to school, right? getting a career. But for the family that they're in, they would have parts within them, maybe coming from generational Mm -hmm. legacy, legacy burden, you know, stuff in in that realm that is not opening their systems up to their child expanding. Right. I mean, this goes down generations. It's like a waterfall, right? The, the parentification of one generation becomes habitual in families because if I if I have been parentified, if I have taken care of my nominal caretakers, if I parented them, then I have these terribly needy parts in me and I have the and and some of my protectors are going to have the expectation that when I have children, it's okay to cause them to take care of my needy exiles and meet mm-hmm. my needs because that's the way we do it in this family. Yeah. Right. I sacrificed, I gave, now it's your turn. Mm. Right. And it goes down the generations as a as a family norm, basically. Right. And if you step out of that and say, I'm gonna go to college, I'm not staying home to take care of you the way you took care of your mother or father, both, um, then uh you're betraying uh the, the family sort of culture. Basically, right. you're really differentiating in a way that leaves people feeling abandoned and betrayed and having their expectations undermined. And they can get very angry, you know, and the pressure can be very high on the yeah. part of that that parent's protectors to get that kid back in the role that they need them in. Absolutely. And it's really important for the person who's under that kind of pressure to be able to get unblend from their 
parentified parts and help them because the those one of the things we say in IFS is all parts, you know, have good intentions, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, parentified parts have a kind of twisted good intention in the sense that they they have been recruited to take care of somebody else in order to try and get some attention for the exiles internally who they are protecting. But their first mission finally becomes, I have to take care of other people. And it and as such, they're not, they're, they can really get in the way of therapy making progress because they're afraid if my exiles get taken care of, I'm not going to want you to do this job anymore. You're going right. to be out of the job. And that could be very dangerous. Your family could reject you. You could be alone in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a it's something you have to unpack very carefully, but you have to pay attention to that parentified part before you're going to get access to the exiles and be able to see any big shifts in the person. Yeah. Thank you for you know, talking, breaking that down like that. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I want to mention this, too. It, it I guess, would you say or would you agree with this that even if, let's say, it is maladaptive guilt if the person decides, makes the decision after connecting with mm -hmm. their parentified, you know, parts and, and even helping their exiles, they might still make the decision to go and be with, let's say the family. And I guess the hope would be that they're making that decision from a self-led space and not from a, a burden protector that there isn't necessarily like a right or wrong well, I don't know. Decision. Well, I guess I mean, where it comes let, let from. Let me put it this way. I think actually if you see somebody who is atoning for this sense of, of guilt and and the and is handling the fear of their parentified protector by um, engaging in a lot of self-sacrifice, that's probably not a self-led decision. Um, on the other hand, a self-led place would usually in my experience often allows people to stay connected even when people are angry at them mm -hmm. without uh, having to comply with unreasonable demands in other words the choice it's not it becomes not a binary choice anymore of either i'm in my family mm -hmm. or i'm out of it either i'm differentiated and i can't have have my connections with my family or right. i'm uh, or i'm in the family and i have to sacrifice myself and so they're they're much more capable of navigating that uh, over time, sometimes, you know, tolerating periods of being kicked out, but often of a family, but often being able to uh, stay connected emotionally and, mm -hmm. and when people are ready to reconnect on the other side, being available for that. So it's just a much stronger place to be when you're navigating those kinds of um you know, tricky family relationships. Sure. The other thing that's been in the back of my mind as we started talking about guilt, uh, you know, I have a number of people that I've worked with in my practice that are mothers mm -hmm. and they might come in with, I feel like what our society calls like mom guilt when they have a child mm -hmm. and parts of them are wanting to engage in behaviors that are for them and not directly for right. the child. So maybe it's like, oh, I want to start going to yoga again. That was something that I really enjoyed before I had my my baby. Right. But there's a part of them that is 
yeah, experiencing that guilt, a maladaptive guilt mm-hmm. of if I go and do this for me, then I've transgressed. Right. And I was just curious if there was anything you want to mention in regards to that example, because would that fall under like the, the separation guilt? Uh, if I pr- keep pursuing normal developmental goals for someone my age and and my time of life, then I am harming uh, somebody for whom, whom I'm responsible. So that's a tricky question, right, for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's You're always juggling, uh, you know, what can I pursue for my own, of my own interests without sacrificing my child's needs for an available present parent. Right. And I do think that set what we call self-leadership, where you you kind of get your extreme parts who, who are either going to be guilting you or, or, you know, telling you something like you should, you have to sacrifice yourself completely and, and uh, into this role and not have any you left over. Mm. That would be an extreme position to take. Right. Right. And, but you have to navigate the, the back and forth between my needs and your needs when you're a parent mm-hmm. um, and you do sacrifice a lot. It's, you know, you brought this kid into the world. It's your job to meet their right. needs. So for someone who maybe was, let's say like going to to yoga every day because they could, because they had the time, they didn't have a right. child at that point. Right. And then they have a child and that then either they go to one extreme where it's like, they never do it like they stop going completely, but then right. like eventually that leads to their system feeling, um, you know, dysregulated in some way because they're not taking any time, you know, right. for them as an individual versus someone who's like, okay, well, I'm going back no matter what to every day going to yoga, but it is negatively mm-hmm. impacting the child and that, yeah. Right. And that it, they're not getting, let's say all their need, the needs that they're needing met right. as a baby or a toddler, then that's where we could see but basically if you if you if that person was motivated to get into therapy and and pursued that trailhead of mm-hmm. why i'm insisting to go on going to yoga every day even though i'm i have uh, some guilt and i feel like i'm a, i'm not doing right by my child then you would probably find something along you know i don't you never know what you're going to find but you might find something along the lines of i when i was 2 uh, my mother died and I can't stand being around my two-year-old actually because my two-year-old is jealous of this two-year-old who's getting all this attention or it just makes me my two-year-old want to cry yeah and I can't and I don't know why I'm having these feelings I didn't know why I was having these feelings so I would avoid uh, that intimacy with my two-year-old because mm. of what it was bringing up in me and I would go to yoga every day I was running away my kid because of what it was evoking in me in terms mm-hmm. of my trauma history. And so that's the trailhead for that person. It doesn't mean that she should never go get go to yoga. Right. But but you don't want as a parent, you don't want your behavior driven by the things you need to avoid uh, emotionally from right. your own childhood. Yeah. And that makes yeah so much sense. And again, we wouldn't have clarity on that unless we took the time to turn inside and maybe have that direct contact with That's right. 
these parts. I mean, that mother could be could be guilted, could guilt her you know, herself or somebody else could guilt her into staying home, and she still might not be present and available to her two year old because she's in she's basically in crisis internally and something she hasn't been able to help with yet. And I feel like that's where we can also see then even like firefighter parts coming forward in the midst of if they're having this guilt within, so they're staying at home. And, but obviously that's a conflict of numerous different things. And so then that's where I've, I've seen, you know, people experiencing like intense moments of anger and an outburst within themselves and kind of that, then managers come in being like, well, that's not okay. You know? And, and so it just becomes this kind of cloud of, of polarizations and chaos. And so, yeah, being able to take the time for yourself and go to therapy and work with a guide and helping to connect with this to, it brings clarity. Right. Yeah. Brings clarity I mean, having, and awareness. Having kids, having your kids is a huge opportunity, right. For your own. Oh yeah. For finding your own trailheads and helping your own exiled parts and, uh, mm-hmm. and healing your own system. It's also a big challenge if you don't have help and time and money right. enough to do that. Yeah. And I had written down also anticipatory guilt. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I have that kind of in my mind as like, that's coming from, would you say, like warnings from, I think you mentioned like protective manager parts? Yeah, I would say both, both guilt and parts who focus on um, what you might do to somebody else and parts who focus on trying to improve you Right. So so parts who who evoke guilt and parts who shame internally, mm-hmm. these are both managers. They have a slight they have a different focus. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is focused more on relationships externally. The other is focused more on uh, trying to either improve or hide defects internally with the supposed defects. And um, in either case, you'll if you listen to people and check in yourself, you'll find usually that that we we have parts who are both proactive uh, in the sense of warning. I call them the scout parts. You know, if you do this, you're going to feel guilty for the rest of your life. If you do this and and your and your mother kills herself, you're you're going to mm-hmm. be it's going to be terrible. You'll never live. You know, you won't be able to live with it. Or, or a lesser, you know, if you do this and your family goes, you know, falls apart in some way, it'll be your fault. That's right. the kind of proactive uh, warning, guilting, uh, 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 advance notice of how awful you're going to feel if, if you do something that um, that in some ways disloyal. And with shaming, um, it's if you behave that way if you display who you are in terms of these exiled parts if you show how weak you are if you show how needy you are if you show uh, how stupid you are if you show x y and z again you will be you will be rejected you will be unloved you will be punished you will be mm-hmm. right or and it can even be if you show uh, how happy you are if you show in some settings, if you show how smart you are, if you show, if you outdo your siblings, if you outdo your parents, you will be punished or you will be rejected. So it can go, it, it can be a very constraining kind of straitjacket-ish yeah. uh, setting for people with and, these very constraining parts. 
Right. And so could this anticipatory guilting be either or, meaning like, can it sometimes be adaptive and can it sometimes be maladaptive? Absolutely. It can be adaptive. I mean, uh, you know, you, there we have these parts who have a, who sort of hold our moral compass, I think, um, which Freud would call the, the superego, right? Mm -hmm. um, that who are going to say, oh, no, 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 no. When you were five years old, you could punch somebody in the face when they bothered you on the playground, you know, and then everyone yeah. would get mad, get upset with you, but you could do it anyway because you didn't have that impulse control. But now you're 30. You can't do that. Sorry, right. you know, cool it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's adaptive. <laughs> that's adaptive, you know, just cool your jets and figure out how to handle this in some other way than being violent. Mm -hmm. That's one thing, you know, um, or, uh, or, you know, you may want, I want, uh, to take my sister's coat that I like so much, but I know I, I know it's not the right thing to do, so I'm not going to do it. Right. You know, when you're a teenager, no, oops, I want, I'm reaching for the coat. Nope, nope. Uh, she's going to need it later on. I can't take yeah. it. She'll get mad at me. But more importantly, it's not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so then like maladaptively, that could look like kind of example we've already used of even like someone thinking about applying to colleges, right. but well, this part within them is guilting them. Right. Maladaptively would be the reverse. You know, I need that coat to wear today. It's my coat, but my sister might need it. So I'm going to leave it in the closet for her because in case she need, might get cold, right? Um, or caught more, more importantly, you know, I have a depressed mother. And um, if I go to college, uh, if I take that scholarship, on the other side of the country and go there, what will she do? How will she live without me being here to take care of her? Mm -hmm. uh, well, there are things that, you know, it's hard for teenagers to access those kinds of resources, but there are things that can be done that are not either I sacrifice myself or and give up my scholarship or, you know, or I go away and abandon my mother. But those are the kind of stark choices that people feel they're facing. They don't have the resources to kind of find a middle path exactly. around those things. Yeah. So that, yeah, so we've talked a lot about now the, the guilt in regards to I did, and then now we're going into shame. Right. I am. Yeah. Shame is an identity crisis. Um, okay. Uh, right. And the, uh, it's a global assessment of personal value. Which, which guilt is not. Guilt is I did. It's a behavioral thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can recover from having done that. I can repair this. But, but so, and sometimes guilt and shame get linked up. I did bad, right. so I am. I did wrong, so I am bad. Right. right. Yes. Um, and you see that a lot too, uh, kind of going down the, the ladder from, from behavior to identity. And so, so one thing that you talk about in regards to shame is that it can have this both be internal and external. Right. And so can you talk about what is external shaming? Yeah. So well, let me say first um, that I taught myself because I, this is, I was thinking about the word shame and how to, how to operationalize it basically to think in terms of shame as a verb. 
So I think, in, and I translate when my clients use the word shame, I say, are you talking about someone shaming you internally or externally, or are you talking about you feeling shameful? So are you talking about an exiled part who feels shameful? Mm -hmm. or are you talking about uh, a protector internally who is doing the shaming? Or are you talking about someone external who is shaming you? That's right. Um, and so those are, are, that is very important to me in terms of understanding the function of shame and how the viral action of shame in human relationships. Mm -hmm. It is not a kind of brain cloud that comes over you and, and just sits on your head, you know, shame. It's not a noun. It's a, it's a verb. It's an action mm. that it, and you want to know who is doing what to whom mm -hmm. and why. And so let's say you're piecing this out with someone and they say, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know, one of their parents was particularly, would you say critical? Yeah. Shaming. Shaming. Yeah. Critical mm -hmm. is shaming. Yes. Yes. Shaming is the message of shaming and criticism is shaming. You know, not to say that you can't give someone feedback, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that it's important to differentiate. Um, we can survive uh, giving each other information about behaviors and uh, improving and whatnot without shaming each other. But shaming is a a behavior that diminishes the other person. It's it's a purposeful. Usually, I mean, it, it may be done in the name of I'm I'm helping you, right? In educational settings and in and in hierarchical institutions where children are shamed. Mm. It's often I'm doing this to help you improve yourself. I'm going to form I'm getting basically going to socialize you into this mm. way of being. And you can exile certain parts of yourself so that you can belong here. And I'm going to help you do that uh, by basically letting you know what's acceptable and isn't about you. So that's done in a kind of a pious name, you know, I'm, I'm a good person and I'm just helping you do this. And, mm -hmm. and some shaming is done not at all in a pious way. It's done, I'm going to control you or uh, in some way trounce you uh, mm -hmm. with this. But the effect in both cases is the same. So that people who, sh when we shame and we all do it, uh, we all have parts who are capable of doing it and will do it mm -hmm. because it's a very quick, there's a very quick effect on other people. Usually if, if I, if I shame somebody else and it hits the mark, you know, if it doesn't hit the mark, then it's not going to be effective, right? The other person yeah. is like, what are you talking about? I don't care if I have big feet, I'm not interested, right? <laughs> but if someone is really mortified already, they, they've been mortified mm -hmm. in childhood by the fact that they had bigger feet than their siblings, um, then if somebody else says, boy, your feet are really big and they do it to be mean, um, it's going to land, right? It's going to feel hurtful for that yeah. person. And that person is immediately going to feel small. They're actually going to go back to that small part of them who was originally mm -hmm. hurt in that way. And they're going to be diminished in power and in, um, in their ability to exert um, their power relationally. Right. So a shamer who is doing it on purpose is doing it to uh, diminish 
the other person, exert control over them, often to exploit or profit from that control in some way. Um, and it's not a benign behavior. It's also um, the effect of it, even if you think you're doing it, if you're in an educational system and you think it's the greatest thing in the world to do to children, it's actually only effective in the short run. There's, there's an inevitable uh, rebellion that we, we talk about in IFS as reactive protectors who come in after the fact. Um, and this is what I call the shame cycle. Right. Right, where uh, there's an external event of being shamed. That external event goes inside where my manager parts pick up the job of trying to uh, make keep me acceptable socially mm -hmm. with that information in mind. Oh, my big feet are not acceptable. I better uh, hide, try and hide them, you know, by wearing long pants or extra long pants or something, covering, you know, whatever. And then uh, on my so it's become my job to exile my features of me that are not going to be socially acceptable. And I've accepted that job. And children have a very hard time not accepting the job because, you know, they want, they need to fit in to survive. Right. So it's become my job to police myself. And I have parts who are doing that, shaming me and trying to control me and make me uh, constrain me in various ways to make mm -hmm. me acceptable and lovable. And then that causes my, you know, the parts who are vulnerable, who are being exiled and banished in this way to be in perpetual pain mm -hmm. uh, and isolation and exile and, and desperate uh, sort of for redemption. Mm -hmm. And then I have uh, that, that combination is potentially deadly, you know, shaming and shameful all by itself. Uh, can lead to I don't I don't deserve to exist, and it's a very hard way to live. So we have a balancing act with uh, these reactive protectors who come in and rebel against all that. Um, no, I'm not going to feel shameful. In fact, I'm not even going to register shameful. I'm going to do stuff, whatever it takes, to manage this pain right now, and I don't care what anybody says about it. I don't care how socially acceptable it is. I don't care if someone shames me for doing it. I, I'm doing this to survive. Yeah. So those are the firefighter parts. When they get extreme, they are shameless, basically, of mm -hmm. necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, so it's a balancing act between too much shaming, too much feeling shameful, and the need to be shameless. And people, that can all be going on at once inside of people and it can be very extreme or it can be fairly mild right right um but i think that most people you know i would just I, from personal experience and clinical experience but also just you know not not seeing people who are in extremity in uh, therapy but just you know everybody i know has some measure of this experience because it's part of what happens to people in childhood right you, know, you, you get shamed and like and you it said it, and it, it hurts. hurts yeah and that was going to be my other question for you is can shame ever be adaptive uh yeah so that's a really good question and i thought about this for years i would say uh, because the literature there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about this and many people will argue um, in the field and and not in the field, um, that it's really important for people to be able to feel uh, 
I mean, we all can feel shame, but to be shamed. And shaming people is really important. Um, and I, I remember uh, when I was uh, in this march in Washington for the climate changes, it was in a, a way too hot spring. And we were down, it was like 100 degrees in Washington yeah. in April or something crazy. And uh, people were chanting, shame, shame, shame. And I was like, guilt, guilt, guilt. <laughs> you know, you guys are barking up the wrong tree here. Yeah. I think that shame functions, has functioned um, for the human race as a survival, and a very important survival mechanism because it causes us to cohere to group norms. Um, we, we are, when we are in danger of being shamed, you know, we don't wear the purple polka dot pants to school because we want to look like everybody else, right? Mm. Um, we try to conform to group norms and stick with the group. And that causes, I mean, that's tremendously powerful in terms of our ability to survive as a species Absolutely. That, we, that we function in groups. Um, on the other hand, um, it's never useful for the person who becomes the example I wore the purple polka dot pants to school and no one would speak to me all day. You know, that's, it's not, I'm being made an example of, I'm being shamed for differentiating right. from the group and being, and I'm warning everybody else, don't do that. Don't, don't be different. Mm. Cohere to these, this, these group norms or you'll be punished. And um, it's uh, so, so it serves the, it serves a function for the group, the survival of that group, but it doesn't serve a function for the person who got kicked out of the group uh, for mm. being different. For them, it's just a, 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 a painful, terrible experience. Um, so it's almost like to some degree for the group, for the collective, it can kind of have an adaptive survival mechanism to it. Yeah, it's not the one we need, in my view, at this point. I mean, I think, I think, you know, there's no like. Uh, I mean, these 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 things don't develop um, out of any moral, you know, imperative. They develop because it helps us survive. Right. But but actually, at this point, I think it actually threatens our survival because when we are so mobile and and basically global the the idea that everybody has to stick to their own group is causing the kinds of wars that that produces to be far more dangerous and potentially lethal for everybody. Yeah, that's a great point to make. And I can definitely understand that. And, you know, I'm also wondering too, do you feel like shame blocks healing <laughs> in the sense that if there is like we've talked about now. Or are you talking about shame well, That's what I was going to say. I was people? like, there's the shamer, okay. there's the shaming, there's the shameful, right? And so if let's say we have a protector part within our system that is being shaming, and then obviously we then also have a part that's feeling shameful, would you say that there's not a possibility if that keeps going in that shame cycle for a potential of healing, which might be the intention of, would you say like the manager part to some extent of like, okay, I'm trying to protect you, the person that I'm doing this in from feeling even more shame, like you are a bad person. Cause so therefore I'm going to do the shaming first 
Right. But the protector parts are not, as, as I like to say, playing with a full deck of cards, right? They mean well. They're trying to uh, keep things safe in, and bearable, both, you know, proactively right. safe, reactively bearable. Um, but they, they're going about it in, in the only way that they could at the time with all the resources they had at the time. But when we uh, help that system access the other resource, which is available to everybody, which is um, what we in IFS call the self, but you know Buddhists call it wise mind and and you know various mm-hmm. uh, various other names for it, but it's our our sort of um, alternate kind of consciousness, which has a uh, a kind of bird's eye view of of things and uh, and is based in compassion mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, all the other C words that Dick talks about in IFS, the courage and can, uh, creativity. And mm-hmm. um, so there, there's a kind of center spot that we can all access in ourselves when our parts un, unblend or make room for that. And once people have access to that, um, they have basically a navigating chart. Let's put it that way. They have access to a to an internal chart. They don't have to look elsewhere to find out uh, how to get through tough situations, how to maintain relationships and be safe um, uh, and and pursue normal developmental goals and all that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Was that, yeah. does that answer your question? Yeah, it, yeah, because I was just, you know, I, I was just curious to have that conversation with you of, and kind of clarify that, that, you know, if we're stuck in this shame cycle, again, it's like those protector parts have a positive intention of trying to help the system not feel something deeper, more of that shame. But at the same time, because I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I, I again, I work with numerous people that come in, I think, blended with one of those manager shaming parts that are like, they're using the language of that part. And they're like, I just need to do this, or I just need to do that. Or this, this right. is so stupid. I'm so stupid, you know, and they're like, no, right. that's what I need in order to then get better. And it's right. like, oh, okay. And now looking at it from parts, it's like, all right, I'm hearing this now from a manager part that is again right. using this critical shaming energy right. within the system with the intention of trying to make the person feel better and to be better, quote unquote, right. you know, but it's not going to happen. And like you said before, I think it's like there might be some temporary changes or shifts, but ultimately it's not going to be given the opportunity of an unburdening if you're not turning towards it with that self energy of compassion and curiosity to really have that direct experience. Yeah. And well, let me say this, that, that protectors, um, particularly um, manager parts are often very wedded to their jobs. Um, it's very hard. It can be very hard for them to think that things are going to be okay if they're not, you know, uh, hypervigilant about, Mm-hmm. your presentation in the world and how other people see you and and there's some you know reason for that it's not like it's easy to navigate the uh, uh the social situations and relationships but the the key to all this is not 
I mean, if a, if a part is willing to relax or, or hopefully even do something completely different, that's great. If it's not, if it kind of wants to stay on this job, the key is to have the relationship between, uh, have it be in relationship with the self, right? So that it feels mm -hmm. that it's got some, if it's worried or upset, it can go to you and say, look, I don't think it's such a good idea to do X, Y, and Z. And, and there could be a conversation rather than the part taking over mm -hmm. and starting to do that shaming thing again, because that's really dysfunctional and right. doesn't help. But the part may not want to give up the option. That's that's okay. Uh, you want it. You don't want it turning toward a part who's been hurt and shaming it. You want it coming to you and saying, "I'm worried," or "I'm upset," or. I need to just tell you, I think this is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. and so you want the system, you want the self to be in a leadership position and you want lines of communication to be open everywhere. I mean, you can't, you know, control what your parts are going to do, but you can be in relationship with them. Yeah. And that's where obviously for my own personal work, I have found that to have such wonderful opportunities of shifting and transformation is when I can feel in connection with my parts and they have a relationship with me as the right. self and yeah and that, shaming parts huge. often you know feel relaxed a huge amount mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean they might not start up in the middle of the night during a crisis right. you know but they're usually like happy to go lie on the beach or something and Right. Because oftentimes else. there's other parts within there that don't like them. <laughs> oh, and, oh, totally. They're very unpopular. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I have found that when you ask one, you know, would you rather like to be doing this differently? They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I can be a cheerleader instead of right. being yeah. a naysayer. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, before we come to a close in our conversation, the other thing that I had kind of um, taken note of from your book was you mentioned kind of some outcome goals mm -hmm. when looking at shame and maladaptive guilt specifically. And I felt like that was really helpful the way you laid it out in terms of these specific examples, just in these very simple statements to mm -hmm. kind of help the reader. I feel like for me, like have a greater understanding of, oh, okay. So for example, mm -hmm. you wrote under shame, that can sound like I'm bad. And the goal is for someone to eventually, you know, have the statement of like, I'm fine. Right. I'm not bad. Right. I'm fine. And let's say someone did engage in a behavior that was a transgression and it is fused with shame. That's where you said it could sound like I did wrong, which is guilt. Right. And so I am bad. Shame. Yeah. And the goal is more of a statement of I did wrong. I am not bad. I will repair the consequences. Right. And I feel like that's, I'm just grateful that like you wrote it in there that way because it just makes it simple to understand. Yeah. It's not, it's not that hard really. And the, the goal, ultimately my goal for people in therapy is to go from who have had traumatic experiences is to go from, you know, I'm bad to a bad thing happened to me. Yeah. And I'm fine. That's right. Yeah. And I always yeah. was fine. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Martha, for chatting about this with me. Sure. This is so, so fascinating. 
And yeah, I'm really honored that we were able to have this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I know uh, we were chatting before the, the the official start of the interview, and you mentioned to me that you've been working on, would you say like five books? Yeah, I think it's five. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's not I'm not by myself. I'm, I'm, I have co-authors. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And you're also working on an online program. Mm-hmm as well. And that will yeah, be for the future. I'm, yeah. I'm, my goal is to develop a, an online program where I can teach uh, what people would be interested in hearing and, you know, in talks or, or trainings um, and have that available in segments and then have some live Q and a uh, sessions for people to talk about it. Yeah, that's great. I'm excited yeah. to hear about that when that's ready to go. And for people to have access to your information, your resources, where should they go? Uh, to my website, which is just Martha Sweezy. Just look it up online and you'll get to MarthaSweezy.com. Perfect. And I'll put that yeah. link in the show notes too. Okay, great. All thank right. You. Well, thank you so much, Martha. Thank you all so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating and leave a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at Natalie Deering and sign up for my newsletter on my website, ndwellnessservices.com to receive updates about podcast episodes, workshops, and more.